Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with June Zhang, author of the new book, Driving Toward Modernity, Cars and the Lives of the Middle Class in Contemporary China. Jun Zhang is Assistant Professor of Asian and International Studies at City University of Hong Kong. We spoke to Jun about what it's like to be the first person in your family to ever own a car, the massive increase of cars and car owners within China over the past two decades, and how the Chinese, particularly the middle class, have thrived as well as struggled with this unprecedented influx of new automobiles into the country. Hello, Jun. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, uh, Jonathan. Thank you for inviting me to do the podcast for the book um, that just came out. Uh, yeah, as, yeah, yeah. Congratulations! Driving toward modernity, cars, and the lives of the middle class in contemporary China just came out. So, congratulations! Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Great. Um, so, tell us uh, what inspired you to write this book and, and get into this research. Um, so that is uh, well. It's a quite. Let's say the whole project is actually quite. Um, let's say an accident. Um, it is by no means. Uh, it's not a by designed project. So to start a little bit, you know, I have to the time everything has to roll back to two thousand and three when I was just started. I was admitted to graduate school in the uh, United States. So I. Grew up in China. I grew up in South China. Um, so when I got the letter and when I was prepared to move to the U.S., I was repeatedly told that I should um, learn to drive because uh, life without a car in the U.S. Uh, would be really difficult. So I enrolled myself in uh, driving school. So at that time, actually, um, not many people had cars at home at all. And driving to work uh, for leisure was really uh, rare in cities, even in cities like Shenzhen and Guangzhou, which was uh, some of the most, um, let's say, economically developed cities in China. Um, so when I went to the driving school, um, the, the, the kind of vehicle that they used for students were actually pickup trucks. But of course, now pickup trucks is a cool thing in China. So, and then now they are called a pickup. Pickup basically is a Chinese direct translation uh, of pickups. But at that time, pickups had the name. It's called the peasants' cars. So you sort of get a sense, um, you know, what the car scenes at that uh, at that period. So um, at that time, you already see the uh, the number of bicycles have already significantly reduced. And then uh, the cities are gradually moving on to accommodating more and more vehicles. But still, that was in 2002, 2003, and it was still really rare that you will ask, you know, people around you will say, do you have a car? Most people will be very uh, unfamiliar with this concept. And so then uh, in 2004, I had uh, a vacation in Germany and I travel around for almost uh, a month. Um, so as a student, that was a quite eye-opening experience for me. And so I saw a lot of different kind of ways of driving. The interactions between cars, passengers were very different from the way that you know I was used to in China. You know, so the way how people drive, 
how roles were constructed, how people talked about cars. Everything just was so different. It was just fascinating to me. And so after that traveling, I went back to China, and then I suddenly realized a lot of these, uh, let's say, newsstands uh, that sells a lot of uh, car magazines. That was again something new. When I grew up um, in China, most part uh, in most part of China, uh, you don't see car magazines, and the very rare ones that actually came from Hong Kong, typically because friend, friends or family visits, so someone brought a magazine, so we could actually see, you know, uh, what is a Lamborghini, what is a Ferrari looks like. But that was again really uh, something rare in life. But then uh, in the early, let's say, 20, uh, 2003, 2004, we started to see a lot of car magazines that came out from China, printed in China, uh, written in China. So um, I gradually then started to look into you know, what happened. And then so that was the time when uh, car sales suddenly showed up in China. So that was the time what we typically, a lot of Chinese at that time is called Jinpen. So basically saying that suddenly the sales goes a lot, go up a lot. But then at the same time, that was a significant transitional moment when most of the car buyers shifted from government and company to private uh, individuals. So I, that's actually sort of the, uh, really the, the, the trigger point for me that I basically rewrite my entire uh, PhD proposal and then switch to I want to learn about these first generations of non-professional drivers. Now, how do they know how, what, how to buy cars? And how do they know how to drive? And these are people, they are first generation uh, drivers at home. So quite unlike, like for example, a lot of American friends and colleagues, uh, my European friends and colleagues, they grew up with a family car they don't really need to go to driver, uh, driving school to learn how to drive because they already learn how to drive from their parents as they grew up. But these are very different. So a lot of my interlocutors have no prior driving experience before they enrolled in driving school. And their car was the first family car ever. So this is the kind of issues that really intrigues me. So what do they see in a car? And what does a car mean to them? How do they learn to drive? Um, what do they consider to be prestige way of owning a car and having a car? What is the way of the propriety you know, that comes with it? And, and also, there's a lot of other things that build around it. So what happened to the mechanics? How about parking? You know, how do they deal with parking in cities in China, which is uh, notoriously for uh, heavy traffic, uh, highly uh, densely populated. So how do they negotiate all these uh, with all these people and how do they find the space and how do they find the flexibility and how do they deal with that anxiety that comes with driving? So that is the really the, the, the issues that really intrigues me and that prompts for that coming 10 years of research and writing on this topic. It's amazing to see the evolution of your study of this. You know, you taught you you started the research back in the early two thousands, and you you have some statistics here that you got from the World Bank that in twenty ten, the the U S had four hundred twenty three passenger cars per thousand people. 
in China only had 44 passenger cars per thousand people. Now China is the biggest auto market in the world. So we're literally looking at a period of 10, 15 years of just incredible growth. Um, and it's amazing to hear about, as you were saying, first time car owners that no one else in their family had ever even dreamed of owning a car. And now they're driving them around. It's, it's amazing to see. Yes, um, well, the, probably that's also um, one of the uh, biggest challenge, uh, challenges uh, in writing this book is that because everything is just happening and it happens uh, so fast. Uh, so I was constantly worried that whether my observation you know, was already outdated, where the direction, uh, the whole society, a lot of the peoples were moving towards. I think that kind of uncertainty is also something that I find interesting. And as I mentioned in the book, that it also captures a lot of the feelings of being a middle class as a car owners, you know, how they feel about uh, in, you know, this rapidly changing society. Uh, everything was changing. Everything was growing. Consumption was going up really fast. They suddenly can own a lot of things that their parents can never dreamed of owning before, but yet at the same time, not knowing where this whole thing uh, goes towards. So I think this, the two actually, the cars and then the middle class, therefore they sort of, um, not two sides of the same coin, but they sort of more or less uh, can help eliminate each other. So they can become a metaphor, sort of more or less for each other in many ways. So that's why I decided then to put these two together um, in the book. I really like how you do it. The, right off the bat, you have a, a story using the metaphor. Um, you have a story that, of a conversation you had with a friend, Ming Li, uh, and you're in a car on the highway, expressway, and Ming Li says, we can afford a car now. Car, cars used to be for bragging rights. You used to dream about owning a car thinking, then I could go anywhere. Now everybody owns a car. Here we are in the middle of the road, stuck. Life is like this too. And I like how you then use that as a metaphor for the middle class. And there's a, there's a, a saying that you had heard, um, above us are the elderly, below us are the young. We are the true middle class trapped in the middle. And I, I like that how there's all this dynamic change and people are moving forward, but at the same time, there's all this uncertainty, so they feel a little bit stuck at the same time. It's great. Could you uh, explain a little bit more about what you found with this? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, to, to say middle class um, is actually a very weird concept uh, for many of uh, my interlocutors. So I'm, sometimes when I have a discussion with them, they actually, um, they often ask me back, what do you mean by middle class? So this is actually one of the, uh, the quotes that you just read are, are something that actually comes out quite often. It's actually more than once. Mingli is just one of the many that actually use a term that they, they describe themselves uh, in this way. Um, so for one thing is the, 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 the term class itself is very historically, politically loaded in China. Um, 
so for all these, so first of all, for all my interlocutors, um, so this is a very um, a specific kind of middle class. So when I say that this, my middle class interlocutors, um, most of these people are professionals. And most of them are college educated. Um, so it's, you know, there are other books that are on Chinese middle class. Um, there are different kinds. So there are the more business kind and there are, are the more uh, civil servant kind. So mine is more mixed, but in general, they are characteristics by their uh, higher education um, professional jobs. Some of them are business as well, uh, operates their own business as well. Um, so, uh, and these people all learned, you know, they are familiar with all these class terms that they, they, they learn from school. And we all know that in, in the, uh, the socialist period, the class struggle was a big thing for the states, for the governments, and a lot of people suffer from it. So um, for a lot of people, they actually really have a very, very, let's say ambiguous at best, you know, the, the kind of attitudes is ambiguous. Sometimes it's just, you know, avoidance in total. Just like, I, we don't like the term class. I'm not sure what that uh, term means. So that's, um, so they have other Chinese terms to, to describe themselves. So they typically, they, if they really want to use, they use a dietan, a stratum, a small stratum. Mm -hmm. And in most of the cases, they actually just omit the, uh, the stratum or the class at, uh, completely, just say Zhongchan, so basically the middle property. Um, so that is one aspect of that term. So when they, when they talk about middle class, this often a little bit of the tongue-in-cheek attitude when they talk about it. And then uh, at the other hand is, uh, again, this is a uh, middle class is something that they don't know what exactly that means. So um, they do know, so the, the, the metaphor they use that, you know, uh, I'm trapped in between. So uh, that refers to many aspects, actually many other aspects in their life. So, and uh, they still are very much uh, um, not trapped, but they are still, let's say they practice this more like multi-generational families. So they still have a strong sense of responsibility for, uh, to take care of the elderly. But at the same time, uh, again, this kind of uh, newer generations of uh, parenting, you know, new kind of parenting, that means they also invest a lot in raising their children. So they feel that they are the, the, the generation that's in middle, um, sort of the pillar of the family, but at the same time also being squeezed out by you know, all these family duties. So that's one aspect. On the other aspect is sort of a social and political. And to be a middle class is actually not exact, it's quite different from what you will imagine in many other places for the, for one thing, and they know that um, they have our mo uh, they have achieved our uh, our social mobility, but there's also a glass ceiling. They know that it's very difficult to move further up. Um, in their understandings, in order to move further up, you need strong, very strong political network, and they do not have. So it is in that sense they actually do not consider themselves to be social elite in any way. And so they could not really move up, but they also were quite conscious of that there are a lot of people below them who have a lot of difficulties in life, including, for example, their parents, many of their parents were forced into retirement 
or being uh, dismissed, lay off from the state enterprises that is, you know, due to all these structural transformations in China. And then, of course, the migrant workers. They, so these people uh, are realizing, you know, they're this kind of social structure. There is this social hierarchy. They managed to move up a bit, but they couldn't quite see where they can move from here on. And so that's why this kind of a traffic jam uh, becomes almost for them, it's a perfect metaphor for them to know that they can move, they can achieve something. They managed to get, to some, to get something that they really wanted when they were young. But from then on, um, there are so many things that was out of their own control. And so I think that is something that I really want to capture, that kind of achievement, but at the same time, anxiety that comes with like being a middle class. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. With, your, with, your, with this decade plus of research at culminating into this book, how do you hope the, your research will make a difference in your field? Um, well, I, I hope that um, like several aspects of it, and for one thing, um, I think a lot of the research on cars or, or middle class is continued to be very uh, um, Western-centric or uh, tend to be, they, these kind of literature tend to focus on more developed economies. So you will see a lot of them on cars written, like for example, large amount of literature is on the United States or in Europe. Um, for middle class, very similar. So, um, so that's what I, I try to bring in, you know, some uh, different kind of stories. It's particularly the rise of this kind of uh, automobility uh, middle class in what we consider to be the global South. So how they are experienced look like, how those processes uh, look like. So that is one thing that I hoped that my book can uh, contribute to. And then the second part of it is um, there are a lot of uh, like well, growing literatures on mobilities and infrastructures. Um, so I would like to uh, bring in again a, 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 another set of uh, questions and um, empirical analysis and to see how this kind of a mobility, ideas of mobility, material aspect of mobility has been shaped uh, historically, politically, and culturally. And then to the, on the third aspect uh, is something that um, about social transformation. I want to uh, provides a nuanced picture, a nuanced understanding about continuity and ruptures. And I think uh, China provides a, a great example to think that, uh, well, we like to think that, for example, uh, China is it China is a neoliberal uh, country? Is it China a capitalist or not? Well, my, my, my answer to it is like, well, things are not that simple. And if you look at these kind of interactions, you know, this kind of a mobility, social and physical mobility, and you realize that the past continues to play a very important role in shaping uh, who can actually move up. Where do they start? What kind of edge do they get? And if we don't look at the past, it's quite difficult for us to understand 
why certain symbols become so important, why certain narratives could become uh, such a discursive strategy that for the middle class to, tr to achieve something that they want, but at the same time without alienate themselves from the state or the government. So I think uh, my book can contribute to the understanding this kind of a more nuanced pictures about social transformation. I like that. I like the, the nuance that you're bringing into the conversation as well as the um, bringing in the perspectives of the global south. These are all essential for us to understanding what's really going on. And in that vein, what ways do you see your argument being perhaps controversial or, or ones that will shake up preconceived ideas? Well, I think uh, one thing, uh, one is that I have just mentioned um, a lot of uh, literatures and also in common understanding is whatever China achieved today is because of the market reform. Mm -hmm. So for example, the rise of the middle class is because market opens up and therefore there's a professionals. Um, and then at the car, similar story, China joins WTO, uh, global, global capital uh, got in and therefore the car market uh, was, uh, is burgeoning and so on. And so my, my answer to it is that, well, it is actually not quite. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, or look at the larger picture, you know, put it in a longer historical trajectory, we notice that, well, yes, the market reform did provide some kind of a structural transformation that makes certain things possible. But in order to turn that possibility into reality, we see there's a lot more other things that are going on. For example, um, we see a lot of this, for example, the middle class, the fact that they could actually rise up today uh, from you know, where they start. You know, most of my uh, interlocutors grew up with um, relatively poor family backgrounds. It's, it's not like um, that kind of poor, we have to put it in relative terms because society at that time was generally poor. So everyone's poor, um, so it's a, but relatively egalitarian. So uh, it, it allows them, it's that kind of relatively equal footing that allows them to actually, uh, by working hard, and by taking advantage what the structural transformation, the market's transformation, that, you know, that kind of opportunity that uh, they can actually move up. And some of them actually look very, uh, quite reflexive and quite critical, and they will look at uh, generations after them. When they, uh, or sometimes when they look at their uh, own children, they will say, well, today, um, sometimes you just know that for certain young people, it will be very difficult to move up the same way as they do because the starting points are just so hugely, vastly different. Um, so for the people who are trapped now in the poor, really like in a highly stratified society, when you are poor, it's very difficult to achieve the same kind of mobility that they could have, um, like say, 20 or 30 years ago. So I think that is one uh, important message that I would like to bring up to look at it, you know, from a little bit of uh, uh, processes and to recognize that there are different kind of uh, institutional settings in the past that will continue to shape the way how people lived and their understandings and their practices and their, um, let's say, uh, their 
morals, their morality, their ethical practices. And then the second uh, findings, I think it's important to remember is that a lot of critics will say, well, China didn't quite, doesn't quite have a civil society because the uh, middle class uh, uh, were not exactly a solid, you know, a group with solidarity. And they didn't quite speak up like, you know, what they are, uh, like the middle class in, uh, in, in Europe or in United States, you know, how they constitute the backbone of civil society you know, to counter uh, the invasion of the state, state power and so on and so forth. So my uh, argument is to look at it is that, well, once we move beyond, you know, this kind of a civil society, state and society dichotomy, you really look at a middle class as an important force to shape political legitimacy. Then you will see actually, the Chinese middle class is very much doing exactly the same thing what uh, middle class in Western countries are doing, uh, helping and shaping uh, political legitimacy. So I think that might be the two points that we will, if that can bring us some uh, conversation, I will be happy. <laughs> definitely, oh, definitely. Your, your, your research and work is definitely going to spark conversations that I'm looking forward to seeing uh, how it's being reviewed in journals and the conversations that it sparks. Um, and it's, it's fascinating to see you're, you're right there um, at, at a, an incredible turning point in, in China in this transition towards an automobile society. Um, and it's great to have you grab uh, this kind of time capsule of this period. And obviously it's still expanding at a dramatic pace. There's, there's gonna be plenty of new things to study as well. So you found a great topic to, to choose. Oh, thank uh, you. And well, we do hope that it will stop at some point at certain point. And again, um, even though I wrote a book on cars, I myself actually don't drive. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I use public transportation, I walk. Um, so, um, I mean, there are serious issues that comes with, uh, environments oh and also, uh, uh, that kind of, um, exclusion, the social exclusion, marginal okay. groups issues. I think, um, I'm, while I am, I feel exciting about seeing it, the rise of automobility as a exciting moment to explore social transformation. Um, but on the ground, uh, the, on the practical aspect of things, I'm actually quite concerned about this, if this kind of unhindered uh, growth of car ownership continues, where will we end up? Uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of unintended consequences that we've seen here in the US and in, in Europe where car becomes everything and then they put highways and roads all over the place. Um, and then you have somewhat unlivable cities. Then you see a transition away from that where people are saying, hey, let's get rid of cars in certain sections of the city. So you see that in New York City, that there's Broadway is, is a pedestrian walkway. So there's going to be expansions and then contractions and then readjustments um, and hopefully towards the better. But yeah, right now it sounds like Wild West or Wild East. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. So great. Well, it was great talking with you. Uh, fascinating topic. And congratulations once again on your new book, Driving Toward Modernity. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Okay. You take care. Uh, you too. That was June Zhang, author of the new book, 
driving toward modernity, cars and the lies of the middle class in contemporary China. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we'd like to offer you a special 30% on her new book. To receive your discount, please go to cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnnounce and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.